We're in John chapter 4 this morning. We are uh, making our way through the story of the woman at the well. Today we're going to get through the second half of the conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. Last week I spent a decent amount of time explaining the differences between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people. One of the most helpful parts, I think, that people find about this particular conversation is that Jesus is speaking with a woman that many of us can relate to. We have sin in our lives. In fact, before coming to saving faith in Christ, perhaps that sin was dominant and may have been something that defined us in the eyes of other people. And here Jesus interacts with this woman despite the social cost, we might be able to say, that may uh, come about for a man having a conversation with a woman in this situation. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to John chapter 4, and here's what I'm hoping to do. I want to read through the story of this conversation again. That's verses uh, 7 through 26. This is Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. Last week we covered the majority of the first half of the conversation. We're going to cover the second half of it today. Uh, And then next week, we'll kind of pick up on the aftermath that comes as a result of that conversation. I'm going to read through it, pray, and then go back through a few verses at a time, starting in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Lord, this has been a gift to many millions of people throughout the history of the Christian church. We are grateful that Jesus had this conversation with this woman. Father, I'm grateful that although no one else was present for it, the Holy Spirit inspired John to record it for us. And again, grateful that you have preserved this word all the way up until this day, that we may read about Jesus' interaction with this woman. Lord, I pray that we would gain insight into the conversation, that we would learn in much the way that this woman had to learn from Jesus, 
that we would be served by the fact that he had the conversation and be even more served by what he taught in it. So Lord, send your Holy Spirit, please uh, help, help our hearts to be open, uh, well-equipped uh, to gain insight here and put it into practice in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's go back to verse 15, which is right where we left off last week. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Again, if you were here last week, you'll remember that Jesus introduced a conversation with a Samaritan woman. It's a bit of a cultural faux pas. She was not one that he ought, by cultural norms, to have been conversing with, but yet he talks with her anyway. And he begins talking to her about things that are very evidently over her head spiritually. She misunderstands what it is that Jesus is saying when he says, I would give you living water. And at least a couple times here, it's clear that she is not understanding what he means. She is missing the point of his teaching at this time. She's imagining literal water. He just said, if only you would have asked me, I would have given it to you. And so, to her credit, she asks, well, sir, can I have this water? And again, it seems that she's just thinking about literal water. This misunderstanding might seem kind of funny, but it is the same misunderstanding, the same category of misunderstanding that we've already seen happen with people who are much more learned than she is. We've already seen Pharisees and Jews back in chapter 2 confused when Jesus talked about the temple. Tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. He was talking about his body, but they thought he was meaning literally. Then he's talking to Nicodemus about being born again, and he says, oh, how can a man crawl back into his mother's womb again? And Jesus, speaking over his head as well, Jesus is explaining these spiritual truths to people who continue to take him too literally. Here she says that she doesn't want to be thirsty any longer. That's the point. Please, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. But she adds something. Or have to come here to draw water. So not only does she not want to be thirsty, she doesn't want to have to come here to draw water. Now, daily trips to a well were very communal events in the first century, in most of the ancient days, quite honestly, for, for thousands of years. People have gathered around communal watering holes. In fact, we still use that language sometimes today to refer to places where people in our neighborhoods or in our community gather. They're called cultural watering holes, the places that people tend to gather and converse and communicate and interact with one another. We even use language in the workplace, uh, water cooler conversations, right? The idea that people gather around uh, the water cooler in fact, in some, some circles, you might even have the vocabulary of scuttlebutt. What's the scuttlebutt? Well, a scuttlebutt is literally a water fountain. That's what that word means. And so what is, what is the way that we converse with people? Well, back in Jesus' day, people would have gathered together around here, and yet he's alone. He's just him and this woman, private conversation. Doesn't seem to be anybody else around. In fact, for her to tell anybody about this, she alone has to go into the town to tell them about him because no one else was there to hear for themselves. I said last week it is likely that the reason that she is coming to the well at the hottest time of day is to avoid crowds. And that suggests that she does not want to have to face the other women of the town. Perhaps her reputation was such that she doesn't want to have to come here to draw water in face down the glares of judgment from the other women who would have likely had to go to the well for water. Neither does she want to have to come in the heat of the day. And so that's why she adds, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here anymore. Well, even if she was never thirsty, it might be very communal for her to come with the other women just to gather and talk and hang out and be together, help them carry their water jugs. She does not want to have to face these people. Now, if that's true, if that's part of what is at play here, it makes even more sense 
what it is that Jesus says next, why he brings in this very perceptive next line. Look at verses 16 through 18. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. Go call your husband and come here. Presumably, he's saying, hey, go get him. I'll I'll, I'll give him this living water too. Go call your husband and come here. She replies by saying, the woman I said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. A few things going on here. Remember, he says, just ask. If, if you had only known the gift of God and who it is who asked you for water, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so she asks. She actually does what he wisely prompted her to do. And he says, go get your husband. She says, I'm not married. It's a reply to which he says, I know. You're right. Yeah, what you said is true. You're right in saying, I have no husband. But he goes on. He doesn't just stop there. He goes, oh, yeah, I know you're not, not married. Don't see a ring or whatever, right? No. He goes on to make it clear that he knows far more about her. He says, you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, if you were just to study the scriptures systematically for teachings on marriage and what what it takes to be a husband or a wife, marriage and divorce topic, this would probably make the cut because we see Jesus referencing pagan marriage, okay? They did not marry before God. They didn't believe in God. Christ was certainly not present in their marriage. It was prior to that time. They were not receiving of this Messiah either yet. And yet, Jesus refers to all five of the men that she had been with prior as husbands. And he knows the difference between a husband and just a boyfriend because now she's just got a boyfriend. Now he says, the man you're with now is not your husband like the other five were. I bring this up because some Christians have the view that unless somebody is married before God in a Christian church in some way like that, they're not considered married before God. That's not true. That's just not true. You've had five husbands. The one you're married to, the one you're with now is not a husband. Interesting, you guys can chase that out. There's more stuff you can unpack in there. But I think that it is important to note that she's had relations with lots of men. Here's why I think that it's important. This is, this is six guys that we know that she's been with, at least. Six men. Because it is highly improbable that she's a widow five times over. That's highly improbable. All five of your other husbands died, and you were just a woman above reproach and the victim of widowhood over and over. No, no, no. It's very likely that these other marriages ended as a result of her sexual immorality. It would not be unwise, but it would be safe to assume that there is sexual immorality going on. In fact, that's probably why the way she responds uh, fits this conversation. It's probably why she's coming in the middle of the day. It's probably why Jesus is bringing up this information to her. Not random facts, but very penetrating and personal, intimate details that she probably would not want other people to know. This is one of the reasons I think this is so helpful. Um, This is not just a woman who had a stumbling once in her teen years. This seems like a serial bride. This This is clearly a problem for this woman. Because once again, this is the appeal of our gospel. It is good news to both the hard-hearted and the broken-hearted alike. It is good news to the one who says, I I don't have a lot of things that I've sinned in. And the person who knows they are a deep, dark sinner in so many ways and is known and seen as that in the community. Our gospel is to the victim and the abuser, to the powerful and the weak, to the social elites and the social outcast. It is good news for all. In the span of a few paragraphs, we see Jesus sharing deep and meaningful spiritual conversations with two people at polar opposites of the religious and social spectrum. Nicodemus, the top of his game. 
And this sinful woman, Jesus is not merely talking with this woman who's a Samaritan, a woman alone with her at the well, but a sinner and one who would have been known to be a sinner to boot. Now, this might seem like an odd exchange. Many have noted he's talking about living water, these spiritual things. She's like, okay, tell me more about this. Give me this living water. What a great inn. All he needed to go, I am the living water. Sir, give me this living water. Ta-da! Here I am. But instead, he draws out this particular part of her life. What do her marital relations have to do with living water? Why does Jesus bring this up? I'm going to offer up two reasons. Two reasons that I think why Jesus brought this up. First, to show he knows her sins. To show that he knows her and her sins. He'd already known about her. This is new information. He didn't sit down and start talking with her and then surmise over the course of the conversation. Wait, how many men? Oh, five, oh, five husbands. Oh, and are you married now? Oh, you're not. Oh, okay. So, oh, so five husbands and one you're not married to. That's not it. He's not learning new information. That's adding to his understanding of her as he goes along. No, he's known this from the beginning. But she didn't know that he knew until now. And so he's making sure she knows that he knows. This is why you're coming to the well right now. This is why you're not with your other friends. This is why... By saying this, Jesus shows his willingness to converse with a woman of such low reputation. And unless you think that this was an entirely coincidental meeting, you and I know that Jesus intended, even desired, to seek out and share God's mercy with this woman. In spite of all of these things, perhaps because of all of these things. There's, of course, an application here. There's a, a truth that applies to us as well. That truth, Jesus knows every sin you have ever committed. He knows every one. He knows far more sins about you than your spouse, than your closest friends, than your closest family members. He knows more of your sins than you know. There are chapters of Old Testament law that teach the people how to deal with unintentional sins. They didn't even know they committed. In fact, you know the Day of Atonement? The day Yom Kippur that the Jewish people would have acknowledged uh, a need for sacrifice for sins. Do you know what that was for? It was for the sins you didn't catch with all the other sacrifices you gave the rest of the year. This is to cover over corporately the sins of the community because there's a ton of sin you don't even know that you did. And that's what this sacrifice is for. So there's nothing missing in the need to purify these Jewish people. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows every one of our sins. Not one of them goes over God's head, outside of his knowledge. That means that you and I have never committed a single sin that is not fully known by God. You have never and will never confess a single sin that is unknown by him. His knowledge is absolute. Confession, then, is simply an acknowledgement of our sins before God. It is not giving him new information. We don't pray a prayer of confession. An angel gets the prayer, runs into the throne room of heaven. God, seated behind his mighty desk there, uh, puts down the phone and says, Yes, uh, you would not believe what Rich just confessed to. Oh, my goodness, again? Doesn't work like that. I know. That's why I sent my son. David in Psalm 32, 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover over my iniquity. I acknowledged my sin to you. This is, this is what confession is for a believer. It's our acknowledgement of sin before God. 
In fact, sometimes our acknowledgement of sin, especially when it's an acknowledgement of something that is newly realized by us, is in a special memory or acknowledgement, a recognition of God's patience with us. If you've been a believer for any length of time, undoubtedly there have been things that the Lord has brought to your attention that may have gone back one, five, 10, 20 years in your life, and you go, I, I just, I never realized that was an issue. I just, I just hadn't thought about that, or I didn't realize that event back there was so significant, and I had sinned against another person or against God, and you're in the Bible, you're in the Word, or maybe you hear another brother or sister confess about something, you're like, oh my goodness, I, I've done that. And then there's a realization that the Lord kindly did not pounce down your throat He has known perfectly of all of your issues, all of your sins, maybe for years, and been patient and tender in dealing with those things. We, when we realize our sin, we must acknowledge them before God. But I want you to consider, this woman is sitting before Jesus, who's just made it clear he knows of her sin, but she didn't even acknowledge those before him. She's, she's in a different situation than even we as believers would be in today as we confess. She didn't come confessing her sins to Jesus. She didn't see this wise, traveling sage sit there and say, you know, I just have this feeling in my heart, I need to tell you of all my wrongs. No. In fact, it is news to her that Jesus knows anything. What, what, what? You're talking about water, buddy. It is a vulnerable thing to have your sins known by another, and especially so when you did not invite a person to know those things about you. Can you imagine her shock? Oh, oh, oh. And her shock about Jesus' knowledge of these details in her life, as will be made very evident later. The very next verse will make it clear. She's like, whoa, you've got to be a prophet, buddy. Okay, that's the first thing she gets to. Later, she's going to tell, uh, tell the people in her village, in verses 29 and again in 39, she's going to tell the people, come, meet a man who told me everything I'd ever done, right? So she's, she, she knows what Jesus knows. And it seems here that he knew details about her situation that were not public knowledge. Just bear with me here. Consider that. He doesn't say, I know about these husbands. He goes, oh, have you been talking with Ruth? Is that how you know? She doesn't respond, well, yeah, everybody knows. When she goes back to the people later, does she show up to them and say, come meet a man. He knows all about me. And someone else goes, everybody knows about you. No. This is significant. Jesus knew things that no one else knew. She knows the only way he knows is by a supernatural miracle. God alone must have told you because I've never told a soul. She has private sin that he knows about. Imagine that feeling. A stranger, all of a sudden, expose your deepest, darkest sin issue. It seems that the people knew that she was a woman of ill repute. They, they know something. They don't know how many. But Jesus does. So imagine the feeling. Imagine you're there in public, random stranger, t- saying weird things over the top of your head, kind of confused, and then drops this. Uh, what will Jesus do with this information? Imagine the vulnerable feeling. Will he take this opportunity to shame her for her sins? Will he rebuke her and demand repentance? Will he threaten to expose her publicly? Will he... After saying these issues, an indignant stand up and leave, crying, unclean. He does nothing of the sort. He knew of her sins before he sat down. Now she knows he knows of her sins. And there's a second reason he says this right now. 
to display mercy, both to her, both to her, and for our benefit. Why in the world would this private conversation with this random stranger in Samaria make it into the Bible and be preserved thousands of years for our benefit that we're reading it today? Why? Why would the Holy Spirit inspire John to write this? Give him the knowledge somehow to write this and make sure that we have it today. Why? It's not just for her benefit. She died a long time ago. As a display of mercy. This woman is the clearest recipient of God's unearned grace so far in John. Up until this point in this gospel, it might be possible for a reader to read through the interaction with John the Baptist, the interaction with the people like his mother at Cana when he's turning water into wine, the Jews at the temple when he's interacting with some Pharisees, Nicodemus, this high and mighty ruler. That might be in the mind of the reader the first time through this, And it could be possible for somebody to assume, by the time you get to chapter 4, that Jesus' offer of eternal life is only for good Jews. But here, the woman at the well illustrates for us God's extraordinary mercy on lost sinners, even pagans, even Gentiles like this woman. Jesus draws attention to her sin because this is why he has come. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John has already told us in this gospel. Which sins does he take away? Sins just like these. All of these. It is her sins, sins like these, that have caused a separation between her and God. But in great mercy, God sends his only son, his perfect son, to seek her out to tell her how to worship God, to offer salvation to her. I believe we'll see this woman in heaven. Christ went to the cross to be the sacrifice for the very sins that he's confronting in her right now. If you're not a believer today, that's what you need. You need Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to wash away your sins by belief in him alone. That's what you need. And as he raised, you too can be raised to eternal life. That's it. That's how it works. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he's giving her every reason to believe. What a display of mercy. Jesus deals with sin. He will deal with your sin. You can't have a relationship with Jesus in which he doesn't deal with your sin. You're not going to get very far in a relationship with Christ without dealing with your sins. In fact, this is one reason why people avoid Jesus. They don't think they can... They can can manage walking through those dark histories of their life or admitting and confessing the issues that they are facing. Maybe they don't even see them as issues or don't want to. You can't have a relationship with Jesus without dealing with your sin. And when I say deal with your sin, I mean all of your sin, all of them. Everything is laid bare before him. There is nothing he does not know about. Everything is on the table as it were. And unlike every other person in your life, you do not get to set boundaries for Jesus in your life. You you, you have people like that in your life. Everyone, to some degree, has some level of boundaries. They only know what you let them know or what they can observe. That's all they get. And when it comes to inner heart things, they can't possibly know. In fact, some of you might even have people, I'll tell the work things to my work people, I'll tell my family things to my family people. I'll tell my religious and Christian-y things to my Christian people. You set the boundaries for every other person in your life to some degree. But Jesus gets access to everything. Everything. When you invite Jesus into your life through faith, receiving him, believing in him, whether you realize it or not, It is an authorization, it is an invitation to have part of everything in my life. And some people don't think of it that way until the Lord starts doing mighty work on their soul. That's why it's so often that somebody becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. A conversion moment happens and they're just riding on cloud nine. Everything's going wonderful. They think it's great. Six months in, a year in, all of a sudden there's this 
heavy weight. Why? Because you're being, your sin is being dealt with. That's why. You don't get to keep any locked closets that he is not welcome to open. He gets the key to every door. Jesus does not need your permission to know all things about you. He simply does. He knows all of them. And he will deal with them when he wants to. Lord, I, I really don't want to deal with patience right now. Help solve my patience problems later. Right now, give me what I want, please. We don't get to make those requests. Lord, this, this lesson's too painful. I'm not learning this one now. No, no, no. Teach me a different one. No. You can't keep secrets from Jesus. You can't keep Jesus from working in your heart and your life exactly how he wants to. This is one of the craziest things I observe with uh, marriages when I'm talking with brothers and sisters in Christ who are, who are married and they... It's really often that a husband wants his wife to change in this way right now, and the wife wants her husband to change in this way right now. And one of the things I oftentimes have to introduce is God's order of sanctification in your spouse may look different than your order of priority. You may want him to deal with that one issue with your spouse today, and he may want to do that 5, 10, 15 years later. And you're going to have to be okay with that. And unlike anyone else in your life, you can trust Jesus with every part of your heart and life. Not only does Jesus know everything, every issue you'll ever face, ever have, not only does he know that, but he mercifully and gently deals with them in exactly the right way and exactly the right time. You can trust him with every part of your heart and life. Some, perhaps many of you, have been burned by others in your life. You may be especially slow to trust people with your heart. And that's understandable. People so often deal with each other's sins in awful and painful ways. We're no stranger to this as humans. But Jesus is patient, He's gentle, He's gracious and merciful. He's loving and kind. But here this woman barely knows Jesus. She barely knows him. And so now that she hears from him his knowledge, the insights about her private life, and the fact that he's still sitting there and is having this conversation with her, so he's not gone anywhere. So his response to her sin is remaining present not being scared away by it, still sharing truth. How does she respond? That's the question. How, how, what does she do next? Because you might imagine her, how dare you? Who do you think you are? You don't know me. You could, you could imagine. To her credit, and certainly owing to the work of the Holy Spirit on her heart, rather than run, she recognizes that this is no mere man with whom she's talking the next two verses make it clear. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's how she starts. Sir, that's the word for Lord. Lord doesn't mean necessarily she's acknowledging him as Lord of Lords, you know, in that way. Old Testament way we see all caps, Lord. That's not the same. But it is respectful. It is offering some credibility to him a bit. It's a social kindness. Sir... She said that a couple times. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. A few things. First, her perception he's a prophet is nothing short of an admission of guilt. Because she concedes this. She doesn't go, you don't know what you're talking about. That's not true. His insight into those private things, she sees as evidence, proof even. He's a prophet. Only God could have told you those things. How else could you possibly have known? Anyone can level a random accusation of a sin against a stranger. She knows the accuracy of what he says here confirms something supernatural. So she says, I perceive that you're a prophet, one who has access to God's knowledge in some way. 
It's the first thing to note here. Second, you'll notice that this is the point at which the whole conversation changes. Changes everything. Up until now, she made us to have been simply confused. That's what it sounds like. Water, where's your bucket? Where's your jar? Where's your cup on a chain? How are you going to get water out of here? Living water, what's that? I, uh, I don't even have a husband. Every way she's acting and responding to him seems kind of confused. She's responding very literally to him and everything. She, she may, even up to this point, be a little bit amused. Like if, I, I was trying to picture that a little bit. Like As she w- walks up to the well, this guy is sitting there, and she's like, look at this weirdo. And she starts uh, you know, drawing water. He starts talking with her, and she's just kind of amusing, entertaining <laughs> the conversation a little bit. Like, oh, yeah, living water. Yeah, sounds great. Oh, you must be really great, like, uh, but greater than Jacob? Yeah, no. um, right? And then he says, yeah, I know everything about your life. Oh, whatever's going on, here it changes. She doesn't, she doesn't waste time any longer with these platitudes and pleasantries and questions about literal water. Now, I have to acknowledge, some, some who've read this think that she's changing the subject, okay? They see, they see her change the subject, like try to get the get the focus off of her sexual sin, right? Oh, uh, let's talk about something else. Um, Random doctrine, mountain, mountain. Uh, How about the mountains? And then she changes the subject, as we're going to talk about in a second. Some see that here. And that, of course, could be at play. We know that it's much easier to talk theology than it is to talk about personal matters of the heart. It really is. Maybe she's doing that. I suspect the better of her here, okay, I actually don't think she's doing that. The tenor of the conversation that changes from here, what she starts saying about Jesus after, I suspect that she realizes she's dealing with a man who's far more than a vagabond, an odd traveler. And this most certainly has to be the first time in her life she's had this kind of opportunity, a private audience with someone she is certain has a direct line to God. And she asks him a very important question. She's not asking him superfluous questions. What's God's favorite color? Is my grandma in heaven? She asks him something very, very meaningful. She asked him a question about worship. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This was a major point of theological contention between the Jews and Samaritans. Without reliving everything I went through last week about the religious and historical differences between them, you would remember that the Samaritans, as distinct from the Jews, at least agreed that the first five books of our Old Testament were inspired, the Torah, the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books. And it was in those first five books that God tells Moses and the people that when they make it into the promised land, he will establish a holy place for worship, the only sanctified place for sacrifice. Deuteronomy 12, 5 says, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. So both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Samaritans agreed. God will establish his place of worship. But the the agreement stops there because the Jews had the rest of the Old Testament, which establishes Jerusalem as the place that there would be sanctified worship. But the Samaritans established that on Mount Gerizim. They would say that because Abraham built his first altar in the promised land right there in Shechem, That's where the worship was supposed to be, just like with Abraham. They'd even say that Abraham marched up Mount Gerizim to sacrifice his son Isaac rather than Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. They had a lot of significance. They said, this is why. There were two temples. Told you one in Jerusalem, and there was a Samaritan temple in Mount Gerizim. Uh, Nehemiah, in his days, when they returned back from exile, the Jews returned back from exile, and they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, they were opposed by a man named Sanballat, Well, 
History and legend has it, Sanballat finally is the one who goes back to Mount Gerizim, and he rebuilds or he builds a new temple in Samaria. And so there's two temples being built in the same time period, one to God in Jerusalem, one to God in Samaria. And so she's asking, where should we worship? How can we have peace with God? Sacrifice is essential. How can we atone for sin unless we do that? But we're not allowed to go to Jerusalem. Samaritans weren't. We're not allowed to worship there. We're not allowed to step into the temple grounds and offer sacrifices there. The only way we can deal with our sin that Jesus just called out is here. If I'm supposed to make good on my sin, presumably, well, is Mount Gerizim okay? It's a significant question. And whether or not her question was a change the subject or was sincere, the answer is critical. And Jesus kindly responds. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, when the, excuse me, when the true worshipers of God, forgive me, I'll say that one more time. Verse 40, or 21 to 22. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Before we go on to what Jesus says next, let's just try to explain that very briefly. A lot there to unpack, but let's say it, say it succinctly here. He says, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem... Will you worship the Father? It's a significant statement. Hours coming where neither of those places will matter for the worship of the Father. It was not as though there was no right answer here. Jesus is going to make this clear next because he says, you worship what you do not know, you Samaritans. Jews, we Jews worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. The Samaritans did not have the full Old Testament. They only knew God in part. They had tiny fragments of what God had done in the Old Testament. And so they were greatly lacking in their knowledge of God. So much, in fact, that Jesus literally is like, you're not even worshiping true God. You don't know the God you say you worship. The Jews, at the very least, who have been given the oracles of God, to use Paul's words, at the very least, we know who we're worshiping. Why? For salvation is from the Jews. That just means the Messiah was to come from the Israelite lineage, not the Samaritans. It was to come through the line of David, which the Samaritans rejected. That's what salvation comes through, specifically through that line. But this is what he says next. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We're not going to be able to unpack this entire awesome couple of verses right here, right now. I'm going to say a few points as we wrap up this morning. Jesus here takes the opportunity to show that he cares about something far more significant than the details and the particularities of her question. The question was, which mountain? And there's a right answer to this mountain, to this question. There's a right answer to this question. Uh, Jerusalem, you guys are crazy. And he kind of says that. You don't, even, you don't even know who you're worshiping. You worship what you don't know. They at least worship what they know. How is it that she can demonstrate a faith for the atonement of sin by sacrificing an animal. And she should do that immediately. Run to Jerusalem and get that taken care of. Because none of your sins have ever been forgiven, lady. All those husbands, the current sin, none of that's forgiven and never has been in your life. But Jesus instead gets to the heart of the issue. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So which mountain? Neither. Oh, how I wish more Christians did this. I wish we were better collectively as believers 
to get to the heart of issues rather than wasting time trying to persuade others to agree, others to agree with the finer points of doctrine. Jesus does an amazing job of giving an example of this here. If anyone could argue a person into the kingdom, it would be Jesus. And he doesn't waste the breath on that distraction. The woman is not at peace with God. She presently is not. Her sins have not yet been forgiven. She has not yet been redeemed out of her lost state. But Jesus is not concerned with her crossing all the doctrinal T's and dotting all the theological I's. He is far more concerned with her salvation. He does not send her to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice for her sins. There is such a temptation here, especially if you know a lot of doctrine. Because you're going to have people in your life that are going to bring up all kinds of doctrinal questions. And listen, doctrine really, really matters. Truth really matters. Good theology really matters. But if you've ever conversed with a non-believer before, who starts asking you and challenging you about questions of doctrine left and right, and this verse says this, and what about the original word, and what about when, when is Jesus returning, and what about the views of baptism, and what about, uh, what about women in leadership, and what about the thousand different things? You can get lost and spend hours down tracks talking about stuff that is utterly superfluous for this person's soul, and not because those things don't matter. Because you could not persuade them even if you wanted to. I think it is so easy to get in arguments about things that distract from truth that a person needs. I think a great question, if you're wondering for yourself, because I struggle with this. When I talk with people about the gospel and I want to share a truth with them, I stumble into the rabbit trail doctrines. I can do this real easy. I have to guard myself on this. And I feel compelled in those moments to run through my mind the question, if I convince the person on this point, and if hours later I could get them to agree with my view on Calvinism, will that have served their soul? That's a good question to ask yourself. Maybe the answer is yes sometimes. Maybe it's not. Speaking of distractions. It's so easy to do this, and Jesus provides such a great example. He doesn't say, ah, truth doesn't matter. No, truth actually does matter. You're not even worshiping what you know. Truth matters. But he goes, but lady, he says woman. That's actually, it's a kindness. It's not like a woman. You know, it's, it's woman. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of like madam, ma'am. It's that kind of language. It matches sir, where she spoke with him. It's, it's a kindness. Ma'am, the hour's coming where neither of these mountains are going to matter. Why? Why? Because the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Those who will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Because God is spirit, and that's how we must worship him. I think this is what Jesus is doing in this exact moment. I think he is seeking out such people to worship him. I think he is in Samaria like a heat-seeking missile sent by his father to find true Worshippers. Jesus' ministry is filled with moments where he is surrounded, I mean, almost always surrounded by those who check all the right boxes for worship. In Jerusalem, with the right clothing on, with exactly the right amount for the tithe and for the sacrifice, to the letter of the law. Oh, don't forget the spices in the cabinet, mint, dill, cumin. Make sure everything is all set and good. Letter of the law. Check, 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 check. And Jesus says repeatedly, they have no love for God. Who cares that they're in Jerusalem and not Mount Gerizim? Who cares that they're bringing all the right sacrifices according to the law? Who cares they're doing any of that? In fact, many times in the Old Testament, God rejects the 
rightly offered worship practices of the Jews because their hearts aren't in it. He goes, I, I hate the sound of the, the animals bleeding. The sheep's mad in, in your, your worship spaces because I, I will not receive them. Your heart is not in this. The sound of your singing, oh, is awful. Stop it. Because God wants the heart of his worshipers. God is still seeking worshipers to worship in spirit and in truth. This is what we're supposed to do. This is our great commission. It's what we're all talking about, seeking worshipers. It's not to find the right people to check all the boxes so externally we look and behave in a certain way. We want the heart of worship, and God will take care of the rest. Some people can make so much about the least important things in worship. We are prone to it. We're prone to it as people. We are. We're box checkers by nature, some more than others. Just, you got to know that about yourself. Both Nicodemus, both the Pharisee types were box checkers, and so was this woman, Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem. Even significant things, even something so, that is, listen, the difference between Mount Gerizim and Jerusalem is far more significant than many of the things that Christians can argue over today regarding worship. And yet, even in the face of that far more significant issue, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. God wants your heart. Here he tells all this amazing truth to this woman who doesn't deserve by her works or her person any bit of it. Next week we're going to see what she does with this truth. We're going to see what happens in Samaria and we're going to have to unpack a little bit more about this worshiping God in spirit and truth. But let's pray as we close. Lord, thank you so much for this word. God, I couldn't do justice in the time that we have here to the incredible conversation that we just read through. Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters will be served by our time here. I pray that if any non-believer ever hears this sermon somehow, you're here with us present in the room today, uh, hearing it on the radio or in a podcast. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in a heart, would convict a person of sin, that they would repent and turn in saving faith to Jesus Christ. They would believe upon him who hung upon a cross and died for their sins, be raised to new life just as their perfect Christ was. Lord, thank you for this word. Help us to know that Jesus comes. He meets us where we are. He deals with our sin. If there are people here, Lord, who are keeping locked closets in their hearts of sin that need to be dealt with, that they would acknowledge that those keys are in Jesus' hand. And they would let him walk through that house. They would tore him through their heart and say, Lord, here's issues, here's things, here's these things. Lord, help us teach us to be kind to one another. Help us to be as Jesus was here, so concerned about the heart of true worshipers, and he proclaims the gospel to a woman that many of us might have overlooked. Help us to be more like Christ in these ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.